The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. Uh, it is Friday, April 17th, 2020. Boris Johnson, unlike both Kate and my dogs, has still two <laughs> eyes and is <laughs> recovering <laughs> with both of his eyes uh, following his uh, uh, recuperation, a release from the hospital. Uh, uh, we don't have fun anymore. There are a lot of unemployed people in the United States, but in lieu of fun, we have like actually something that is superior to fun today. We have Hannah Nieprash, who, whose last <laughs> name, let's the important facts about Hannah Nieprash. Her last name means no dust in Czech. Is that um, true? It is, yeah. These are going to be all. What true. is what is there in lieu of dust? <laughs> <laughs> um, we have. I'm just thinking of true facts about Hannah Neprash. Um, she has been a, a friend to all witnesses since uh, she showed up in my living room when you were what, like 20? Yeah, 2007, I think. It was a long time ago. Yeah, you were, um, uh, she was uh, not yet graduated from Oberlin College, and she has since gone on to get a PhD and become a professor in healthcare economics at the University of Minnesota. She is um, the best limericist I have ever met. And uh, if you don't believe me, look up in Washington City Paper, the column she used to write for Washington City Paper called District Limerick, which was um, like limericking the Twitter feed before it was cool, right? Like there was the news of the week in limerick form. And, uh, and I feel like my compensation scheme at the time is relevant because I was paid for limericks in one bottle of scotch every two months. Yeah, and so like, what kind of scotch are you drinking? <laughs> um, this is a Brooklady. I have no idea if I'm saying that right. Yeah, it's like- yeah, Welcome to the world of scotch. Yeah. <laughs> There's that great video of Sean Connery just like pronouncing names of distilleries, I think. Have you seen that? Anyway, I have not. I don't know how to say it, but it's delicious. Excellent. So uh, I could rattle off a thousand more fun facts about Hannah Nieprash, including that uh, uh, she is the first uh, guest on uh, In Lieu of Fun to be the spouse of another guest on In Lieu of Fun. So who are you married to, Hannah? <laughs> so I am married to Alan Rosenstein, who was a guest a week ago. We can yeah, do and we, we tried to have you on as a couple, but you had a conference call, and so yeah. that didn't work. So, so fancy. Yeah. <laughs> well, All right. You get to take credit for our marriage as well. I feel like you can't leave that part out. Well, I can leave it out. I mean, wait, what? Know, like, what? 
I, I don't know this part of the story. I did introduce them, yes. Oh, that's so nice. Um, yeah. and of the mitzvah the, or something. They are the I think. first lawfare marriage. That is marriage that took place largely as a consequence of the existence of lawfare. Um, clerk, like judges, federal judges, when they have clerks and people get married, like between like in, meet, meet during their clerkships, this is a similar type of thing. It's like the judges take great pride in like, in like introducing people that get married that are their clerks. So. Yeah, particularly if they're both clerks. Yes, exactly. Yes. All right. So Hannah, um, first of all, I have boasted that you are the only person of my acquaintance um, uh, who is capable of writing a limerick on the spot on any subject on command. Um, Practice, though. To what extent am I exaggerating? Mm. So I would say five years ago, it was 100% true. Now my turnaround time is like five, 10 minutes. So I wrote you guys a limerick for this. In fact, it's a it's a policy proposal limerick. Okay, go for it. <laughs> right now? Yeah. Where I'm like, calling up policy proposal limerick for for to get us started. Okay. There's talk about how to restore a life like we all lived before. I'd like to advance. No, shoot. A thought I'd advance concerns proper pants. I vote that we wear them no more. Whoa. So you're going with drawstring pants should be the new norm? No, you're focusing on the wrong thing, Ben. <laughs> Wait, did I miss the point of the limerick? Yeah, I said it was a limerick. <laughs> oh my goodness. Why? I love that. I mean, Yes, I've been really rocking the, for a while I was doing business on top and like sweatpants on the bottom and now it's just like no business, any place, who cares? No pants. Right. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, I did, um, I did Morning Joe the other day with laundry in the background, although that was the shot, that was the uh, fault of the camera people. Um, and um they you know a massive I, pile of laundry that is always in the widest basement behind you no no i i had designed arranged the shot so that the laundry was not in the frame and they kept saying move your screen this way move your screen that way move your screen that way and then i found out on twitter that the laundry was like solidly in the frame but that was because of the directions they gave me not because of something that i had done so now i have to like as hannah can tell hannah spent a lot of time at shea wittis oh, yeah. and there are very few rooms in shea wittis without piles of laundry in them so more should um, there be your your housekeeping style speaks to your incredible level of intellectual engagement well, I, that's a very this is the most way flattering way of putting that I've ever possibly heard, and I'm going to steal it. <laughs> Every time well, I fail to fold laundry, my defense to Alan, who is you know more on the like neat side of the spectrum, is that it's basically a what would Wittis do, and the answer is always not fold laundry. Yeah, so we have a slogan here at the Wittis household that all are welcome and we clean for no one. <laughs> And that, that is sort of the way I feel about, you know, live television as well. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, 
before we turn to what I anticipate to be a blizzard of questions for Hannah about healthcare economics, uh, Kate, you have received the best letter <laughs> uh, in the history of In Lieu of Fun. And so I think we just have to read it out to, okay, to the world. So I think that we do. And so just like a little bit of a little bit of backstory. So on my Twitter feed, I didn't I am not looking at Twitter as actively as I used to, but I'm like responding to my notifications. And I put out into the world the other day, not knowing that like sourdough starter was a thing everyone was mocking, that I had this 25-year-old sourdough starter that is really, really great and really robust. And does anyone want some? I'll mail it to you. Like I'm going to mail it to 12 people. The first 12 people to respond, I'll like mail you some. And so I got 12 responses, um, some, like about half and half friends and people I knew, and then like half like complete and total strangers. And I, about a couple of days later, I wrapped up all of this sourdough starter and padded envelopes and sent it out into the mail. Um, and, um, I got this great reply and I, with instructions that I hand wrote and, um, and then like included my con my email just in case they had any questions. Who got this response from one of the people that I sent it to today. And it will, as you will soon see why he will remain anonymous. Um, uh, but this is, this was this lovely kind of moment. Um, so he goes, hi, Kate. Thanks a bunch for mailing the starter to me. I'm going to anonymize all personal identifying information in this thing. In unnamed city, an unnamed part of the US. Last night I fed it and it seems to be bubbly. So it appears to have survived the mail since we're getting hammered by a spring blank. I worried that the freezing temps might have killed it. Just, just in case every, this is just imagine this redacted with like a big black marker right now. As someone who refuses to cook who loves to cook, but refuses to bake. It really took those, these current times to get me excited about making bread. It also made me regret the time I turned down a 90 year old sourdough starter offered to me by a 70 year old gold miner. But I was in Alaska on a motorcycle with no way to care for it. Getting a starter from a stranger means a lot to me, even though I don't know the backstory. It's a 25 year old starter and it came in the mail from a writer that I've never met. So now that's my starter's backstory. The handwritten instructions are especially meaningful as I'll Xerox them to pass on to anyone I give it to. Thank you. When I saw the package in the mailbox and realized what it was, my first reaction was to send this thank you and offer to mail you a homemade product in return. Though I don't bake, I do make infused butter to use in chocolate chip cookies that many friends and neighbors swear are the most enjoyable medicinal products that they've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much. Grown by a friend in blank city over blank pass at nearly blank blank feet in elevation. This plants have been grown using cuttings taken from the same mother plant for nearly 15 years. The butter is deep green and makes a delicious batch of cookies that I freeze the dough so as to have a fresh edible whenever life accommodates such a treat. If you'd like, I'll send some butter and you can make the cookie dough. If that's not your thing, you may consider neighbors. If you have any retired neighbors in quarantine, they'd probably be pretty happy to find out some kind soul has left them some space cookies on their porch with instructions. <laughs> When I got this, it's like not over, it gets better. When I got the starter, <laughs> when I got the starter, I wondered who it was from. 
On Twitter, I follow various academics, writers, journalists, wonks, scientists, and subject matter experts, but I didn't know where you fell into that or how I'd, how I'd ended up following you. Several weeks ago, you were on Lawfare with Quinta J regarding disinformation, and it was so good, I found you and followed you. When I realized the sourdough came from the lawfare person, I almost lost my nerve and didn't offer to send the butter. I can't imagine Benjamin Wittes smoking a J and being chill. <laughs> He's so right. I know. <laughs> then I noticed. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> then I noticed your address. This is also true. And I'm going to out myself with personal identifying information. Then I noticed your PO box return was PO box 420. And I take it, took it as a sign to take my own advice and acknowledge that the worst you can do is say, no, thank you. Peace blank. So that is the best letter ever. Um, and uh, I hope that blank <laughs> in blank city and blank state um, is listening right now when I say, actually, you're quite right. I have, uh, uh, I am uh, one of the very few uh, marijuana virgins uh, in the world. Um, and um, <laughs> quite the claim. Yeah, I mean, I, at least over the age of like 13. Um, but uh, uh, it's uh, among other things, uh, blank you can write, which I really appreciate. And I love the uh, run-on sentences that are clearly stylistic and intentional that bring in motorcycles in Alaska uh, and tell these little sub-stories uh, in a kind of uh, guerrilla way that you never totally lose control over. So I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of the writing uh, and I'm super a fan of uh, uh, paying it forward in whatever form, including uh, infused butter. Um, all right, on the show today, Hannah Nieprash. Hannah, I just want to start with the question, when you went into the field of health economics, in what sense did you appreciate that healthcare was going to tank the economy and that all economics were going to become the economics of healthcare? And in what sense did you not appreciate that? Yeah, it's funny. I went into it kind of right when Obamacare was gearing up as a, you know, just a like glimmer in people's eyes. And it actually looked like healthcare was going to be a larger chunk of the economy, right? Like the slope of the, the line was. Um, and then it kind of slowed down. Uh, and no part of me or really most of my colleagues, right? I think uh, spent much time about uh, scenarios where on one hand you have um, a good chunk of the, you know, healthcare infrastructure that is just doing nothing, right? Like if you're an orthopedic surgeon somewhere, you're doing nothing right now. Um, whereas another good of the swamped. So like this really 
exchange bifurcation, uh, where there's a lot of activity in some spots and then everything else is like totally quiet and changing very quickly. Yeah. So we had a guest on earlier this, um, we had a guest on a couple, I don't know when it was, it was like last week or shortly after Alan, um, who was an ER doc and basically told us in like, in like, um, in a, as I learned a major city in Virginia, the capital of Virginia. Um, (laughs) But he was basically saying that um, this had devastated the economy of his hospital um, and, and the healthcare system generally, which is, you know, you think of hospitals as being very busy right now. And he was like, we, I will, I was actually going to read this um, afterwards, but I think it's, I would love to hear what you have to say about it. He texted me the day after that he was on the show and he said, by the way, it is crazy quiet this morning here in the emergency department. I've only seen about five patients since I got here at seven this morning. Uh, less than 20 patients so far today through the whole department. It will be financially catastrophic. Yeah, that's that last part is really key. And that is something we should have seen coming, right? Because we know that one where we just... You know, we pay for everything that happens, right? Like we pay for every single service and not doing surgeries or you're not seeing patients who are walking through your ER. There's no, right? Like how do you keep the lights on? A lot of these things are are struggling. And I never thought I would feel like deep compassion for large hospital systems, but here we are because no one, the silver lining, I guess, is that there's been this like rapid adoption of health. So visits by Zoom with your primary care provider or whoever, it's obviously not really emergency care like that. Um, and all of a sudden people are getting paid for that. So that is like in-person care a little bit. We don't really know how much yet, but yeah, I think the financial that everyone from small practices all the way up to like huge academic medical centers the hit that these folks are taking is huge and will have the healthcare system for sure. So Hannah, your internet seems to be a little bit choppy. Can you tell Alan to stop streaming all of Netflix at the same time? He is uh, downstairs weightlifting, but I can close some um, other connections that- Yeah, just uh, like yeah, see, see if, if you can. can... Um, so your research, is um, about, at least some of it has been about uh, what time of day to see physicians. And I want want you to to, like describe the data set that you've been using over the last few years, because I think it'll take a lot of people by surprise in terms of you know, just how granular big data is for uh, physician behavior. Like, I think it'll actually blow people's minds. And, uh, you know, we've got, um, uh, so as your mind is being blown, and now I'm talking to the audience, as your mind is being blown by what Hannah Neeprash is about to say, if you are not a Zoom bomber, feel free to flag a question for us in the Q&A and we will rapture you into the conversation to pose it. If you are a Zoom bomber 
you know, leave your swastikas and your uh, your uh, 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 racist and misogynistic uh, language for us, and we'll remove you from the uh, from the conversation. And that's uh, 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 the way we do it. So. Um, Hannah, why don't you answer my question while we queue up a few others for you? Yeah, sure. Um, so you're right. All, all of my research, um, you know, like I, I like to get my hands really dirty with data. Um, the bigger, the better. And for me, that means that I work with a lot of data that comes from electronic health records. Um, the project that Ben is talking about was actually looking at, um, opioid prescribing, which feels like a concern we had decades ago, yeah. like only a couple months ago that this was a big policy concern. Um, opioids are, are considered to be overprescribed. I think that is slowly changing now, which is really good. Um, but uh, there's this perception among doctors that essentially prescribing an opioid is a way to, to keep a patient happy, right? And that doctors are under all sorts of time pressure. And so if you have 15 minutes with someone and your choice is to explain, you know, here's what physical therapy is, here's how it works, like here's how you would go about getting an appointment, like that's a very complicated discussion. Whereas maybe continuing an opioid is something that allows you to like move on with your day, which is under any other circumstances, very busy, right? Um, so I have done some work looking at what happens to opioid prescribing over the, over the course of the day. And the answer is it's much more likely in the afternoon compared to the mornings. And it's much more likely if a physician is running behind schedule, right? So if you're under that sort of time pressure, you're gonna see that happen. Um, I think the reason that's relevant today not so much opioid prescribing, but um, I actually just, with a couple of co-authors, used this particular data set, which has all this, like, you're right, really granular information on, like, what time of day um, are you seen by a physician to basically look at what is the consequence if you are a patient who goes into your physician's office and you happen to be seen after someone has come through that office with the flu, right? So like somebody who is contagious with a viral infection, are you yourself more likely to show up with the flu compared to someone who had the good luck to be treated before that flu patient? Do you see what I mean? Not sure I'm following you. Oh, so sorry. If, if, if I show up with flu-like symptoms, yeah. it matters who comes before me if I'm diagnosed with flu? So what matters, let's say that Kate visits before you and I show up after you, it turns out that I am then tw between 20 and 30% more likely to, to come down with the flu myself, right? That the doctor's office is a source of transmission. I see, I see. For certain so, so it's not a diagnostic point, it's actually a transmission point. Yeah, yeah, and it suggests that they're kind of opportunities, you know, that it's really good that we've like pretty much transitioned everything away from in-person care right now. But that isn't is that, but isn't that obvious? I mean, that's also true of the liquor store, right? Like if like Ben went to the liquor store to get another bottle of scotch before me and I had the flu and then you came, Hannah, like then there would be like some type of, right? Like then you yeah. would be 
um, if I was the one with the flu, like you would be more likely to get the flu. Yep. Absolutely. Right. Like on one hand, kind of what we're proving is that flu is contagious. Yeah. I'm not trying to like to minimize what you're saying. I just like, I'm like, but this seems like a really well-known point that the bigger point is maybe that we, we expect some level of like doctor's office to not be places where you get things. Exactly. You don't think of it as a, a place you go to get sicker than you already are. Yeah. But if you go to a doctor's office in the late afternoon and the person who came before you has flu, you're likely to leave with both flu and opiates. Is that right? (laughs) And some pot butter, if you really hang out with the right people. (laughs) Okay, Dan, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, which looks awesome, by the way, Book, Buick. Um, but the floor is yours. And please start by telling us how to pronounce your last name. Uh, one moment. Okay. Yeah, it's just Dan Buick. Uh, I was just curious in terms of, uh, like the car, I was curious in terms of what uh, programming languages you use in your research. Are you using R or SPSS? Or um, I guess this is more of a technical question, but. Um, I do like healthcare data analysis. So I'm just kind of curious as to if, um, what methods and yeah. uh, different things you Can use. Can I guess? Sure. I bet you use R. You seem like an R person. That's a, that's a compliment. <laughs> I appreciate it. I do use R. I also sadly has to have to use some um, SAS and Stata. And I've been learning Python, so. R is better than Python if you have to like, uh, I don't know, that's my, whatever. But I did, yeah, no, I have like, tra- I have statistical training on R. Um, I was at one point going to do a lot of statistical work on cognitive psychology and behavioral economics and yeah. the law. And law but, happened. But then law, ha- but then the internet happened and now I do qualitative research in which I go and interview people. I'm like the very few, one of the very few people who like, People will talk to me and I program in R. So it's like, it's like overlapping Venn Right, it's a very small, it's a very small group, I think. So, but Hannah, talk a little bit more about this data set. You've said that it's uh, about healthcare records. You've said that it's really granular. Yeah. Like, what are you looking at? Like, what's, what, what is, what is the data set? And tell us a little bit about how you came to have access to it. <laughs> oh man, I um, pestered someone within an inch of their life as I was working on my dissertation. Um, the data set comes from a, a company that kind of does two things. And in an interesting way, like reveals the flaws of our healthcare system. So they, this company is is nationwide and they are hired by doctors, hospitals, whoever, to basically do all the paperwork that is involved in healthcare so that doctors can provide care and they don't have to worry about all of the billing stuff. But what that means is that I have all the billing data, right? And then I have everything that that you might see in an electronic health record. So stuff like prescriptions and you know, what time was a visit scheduled? How long was it supposed to be? How long was it actually? Um, fun, fun stuff like that. 
it's and, does, and how anonymized is it? What's um, yeah, I was just going to say that, yeah. like completely. Can I ask a question about um, about Epic and other types of electronic yeah. records? So yeah. I'm just going to explain what Epic is because I think some people don't know, but Epic, <clears throat> which is confusing because there's also the electronic privacy. Um, for, I'm actually a board member and I'm now, I'm like all of a sudden completely- Which is going through a bit of a scandal all of a sudden. Yep, it is going through a bit of a scandal, but- um, it is, uh, but Epic is the Electronic Privacy Information Center. So that's confusing, but it's also the name of the proprietary private software that is used, widely used by hospitals and medical agencies to make, uh, to make, so records can talk to each other. Let's put it that way. Like every, you know, it's like, it's basically like, how do I put this? Um, it's basically like how uh, it's like some places used all like all when like, electronic records were healthcare records were going where healthcare records were going electronic um there was a bunch of different versions of software and they did not speak to each other like ben do you remember word perfect it was like word i remember word perfect. i know it was like word perfect and so like uh, you might not know this but the entire like federal and state new york state anyways court system uses exclusively word perfect still to this day it is like crazy. Um, anyways, we're, there's been a transition and a rebellion slowly. But the point of this is that you can't have this like this kind of you can't um, talk between documents. There's all these formatting things. Um, Epic is, I think, emerged like Word as like the predominant electronic records thing. How much do you work with the data that comes off of Epic? Is it all of it? Like, is that the only way that you're getting your data? And what market share do they have right now as a company? Yeah, yeah, they're pretty big. Um, the the issue with Epic, and this is interesting, like in this moment too, because every like people are trying to get data on like what is happening in hospitals across the country. And the problem is like when you've seen one Epic setup, you've seen one epic setup. Yep. Like hospitals get to really customize it, which I think is great for usability, but it means that for nerds like me who, you know, work with that data, it's all different. And it's That's tough fascinating. To so do you have to like hand code a lot of stuff, Hannah? I try not to as much as possible. Um yes. And when I when I do have to, I I uh kind of share the burden creatively with grad students so that everybody wins and no one has to spend too much of their life doing it. Sorry for taking over the conversation with my nerd questions. No, no, nerd questions are great. I have a different kind of nerd question, Please. which is, I think we have, so over the last few weeks, we have been asking as a healthcare question, as a healthcare delivery question, the, what should our ventilator capacity be? Mm -hmm. and how many times the uh, reasonably expected number of, reasonably expected to be needed number of ventilators should we have in right. case there happens to be a global pandemic that year. Right. And it seems to me at the end of the day, this is, like we experience it as a healthcare question, but it's really an economics question. And so I only know one person who does both healthcare and economics and it's you. And so I wanna ask you, yeah. 
how many ventilators should New York have? Right. And how many hospital gowns and how many masks? And what's the right way to think about the what the right level of surge capacity is if you don't know that this is the year that you're going to have the global pandemic? And maybe you won't have it for another 70 years. Can um, I add a really quick tag on to that question, which is like, is this like asking a microeconomic a microeconomist a macro question? Like, I'm kind of curious, like, do you know anything about like, I'm well, how much, how much do you like how? Yes. Okay. That was my question. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'll answer yours first. How much do I know about macro? Not much, but it's like basically magic. So <laughs> I, I think that micro is vastly superior and based in real evidence. Um, Ben, I feel like your, your question is both a healthcare and an economics question, but right. today it's a, it's a risk tolerance question. It's a like, how much money are we willing to spend for sure that can't go elsewhere, right? Because we have to assume that resources are scarce. That's like 101 econ. Um, to ensure that in the, you know, I, I don't even know how to assign probabilities, but like the very low probability, but greater than zero event that something like this happens that we feel confident we'll have enough, right? And that is- so it's, an actu it's ultimately not healthcare or economics. It's like an actuarial question. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that is something that we're, it, it almost gets into like a cost effectiveness question, which I gotta say, like having spent some time working for the Ways and Means Committee and like doing federal policy, like that is just this idea of like tying dollars to lives and risk is just something that no one wants a part of, even though we all do it implicitly. All right, so let me ask the question a different way. Yeah. If I had asked you last year at this time, yeah. scarce resources, um, uh, you know, the Obama administration and the Bush administration both said we got to do a lot of planning for global pandemic. If we had a major SARS-like event, we probably don't have enough ventilators. Is this given, you know, healthcare scarcity in the United States, given, um, you know, inequities in distribution of care, all the other goods that you might invest in, is this one that we should invest in? Would you have said um, yes, or would you have said no? Carry that risk, and let's um, and let's actually invest in healthcare distribution and access, and we'll deal with preparedness for low probability, high impact events later. Right. I mean, because I know which I would have said. I which which would you have said? I totally would have said deal with the people who need healthcare now, and uh, when when we've got something like universality or near universality in reasonable delivered needed care today for conditions that are going on right now, then we can talk about building a major strategic surplus. Uh, for low probability events, but right now I want to deal with the high probability events, i.e. the certainties, like all these people who have untreated conditions. Mm. You know, we have, near, we have communities where there's 
giant untreated diabetes that's killing a lot of people now. And so I would have gotten this completely wrong. And so I'm wondering, does the healthcare economist say, or the healthcare actuary, as I have now dubbed you, does the healthcare actuary do any better on this than I would have done? Don't be an actuary. That sounds like, that sounds awful, Ben. I Doesn't, love actuaries. Why? Really fun actuaries, like surprisingly fun actuaries. Um, ben, I would have made the exact same decision, I think. Um, it's, it's really hard to say, let's spend resources on something that we don't even know is good. Like we, we don't know the probability of, but it's definitely not happening right now versus untreated medical conditions or anything like that. I think the one thing I, I would have added on would be that, you know, as we plan for this, which we definitely should, and we certainly will, man, I'm knocking on all the wood, we will plan better for the next version, um, that, you know, ventilators are usually something that is purchased by a, a, a hospital, an individual hospital. And that doesn't make sense because that just like perpetuates all of the like haves and have nots that already exist in our healthcare system. So this is a pretty clear example, I think, of the sort of like market failure where it makes sense for government to step in and like a well-managed stockpile collection of ventilators, purchase order, whatever you want to call it, um, is is probably a, a better policy idea than like everybody does this on their own, making their own risk calculation and kind of budgetary trade off. All How's right. Gurgi, by the way? Ger How's is, the patient? He's all right. He's uh, he's standing next to me. He does not want me to stop petting him. But as long as I keep petting him, he's he's doing well. This is this is sorry, not to do a divergence, but this is similar to when Nina had her all of her surgeries. I slept. I did not sleep an entire night. John put in earplugs and went to bed, um, but the dog wouldn't stop crying uh, because oh. unless I was petting her, and so that was like one whole night of my life was like, like so anyway, he's not crying. He's very peaceable, but and, he likes it better. Um, if you're, but he him. does seem to feel better if I don't remove my hand from scritching him, David, you've got a question. Um, so there's been lots of discussion that I've read that largely comes from political leaders about going for public options or for Medicare for all plans and the like. And I just kind of want to get a more technical answer as to what would you be most concerned about if any of those sorts of things came to fruition? What a great question. And let me add on to it, Hannah. Yeah. A, dif a different question, but one we've sort of chatted about socially, which is, you know, all of the Democratic candidates were putting forward health care plans of varying degrees of ambition. Um, how close to anything like reality were any of them and to the extent that any were closer to conceivably realistic than any others, uh, who gets points for realism? Mm, sure. I, I think, and, and I would say that most of my profession would say that our issue in healthcare some of it is that a chunk of the population doesn't have insurance coverage at all. But the bigger issue is that as 
a country, we just, we pay more for healthcare than anybody else, right? Like total spending is the product of the price of care times the quantity of care. And it's not that we all, you know, go to the hospital or go to the doctor's office more. It's that like every time you do go to the doctor's office, it's incredibly expensive. Whether you have insurance, which means that you don't feel necessarily all of that price, or if you don't, and then you're on the hook for everything. So I think that some of the universal coverage um, plans, including Medicare for All, um, are kind of addressing, like they're, they're just not taking on the problem exactly, which is the price of medical care in the US. Um, some of them get at it a little bit indirectly. Um, actually, all, all of them do. So in, in a way they're called kind of like all equally unrealistic. Um, with that said, I think right now, a big concern is that people without insurance might avoid healthcare, right? Like might avoid um, seeking any sort of treatment for COVID symptoms or something, or, you know, in which case they would just continue to spread healthcare because healthcare is so expensive. Um, and that is insane. We can all, like, we can all agree. Um, and so in that way, kind of Medicare for all has a new, I think, resonance and, and relevance to it for sure. And if you had to identify the reason that healthcare is so expensive in the United States. Um, so if we wanted to focus on what you flag as the fundamental problem, yeah. uh, there's a line of thought that it has to do with the inefficiencies of privately delivered healthcare. There's a line of thought that it has to do with the inability of uh, entities to negotiate drug prices. Um, there's a line of thought that it uh, is actually because a lot of American healthcare is better, um, or at least at the elite levels is better. And so, but like, how do you understand if, if, if we focus on the cost of healthcare delivery rather than yeah. uh, equity of access and universality as the core of the problem, what do you attribute the problem to fundamentally? Yeah. Um at least the first two things that you just said. Um, so I think, you know, in, in your Econ 101 class, right, like you learn that monopolies are bad. It's bad if you only have one company that produces, you know, whatever widget you're, you need. Um, if that's the case, they can basically drive up the price and demand, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of dollars for an MRI scan, right? Um, sorry, that kind of switched, switched gears there. And the problem is that in healthcare, we, we don't really have monopolies, but we don't have, you know, the sort of like competitive market that you would want. So giant hospital systems, um, are able to demand really high prices. Um, and there's no, there's kind of no, um, th there's definitely no price regulation whatsoever. I think that that conversation is starting to change. Um, in terms of prescription drugs, Do you, it's interesting. Yeah, Kate. Sorry, I'm gonna just really, I'm gonna flag something for later just so I don't yeah. forget it because you know I'm a glass of wine in, so uh, just making sure. But to that point about competition, 
tele telemarketing, tele like telehealth actually seems to be a great way for things for for new um, for new entrepreneurial like uh, health companies to break in. And I really kind of wanted to hear people are not conscribed. We've sorry, I'm gonna go on a brief detour just really quick. I don't want to cut you off. I want you to answer, yeah. but. Um, one of the crazy things about, we didn't get to talk with Doug about this, but one of the crazy things when he was working in emergency rooms, like in high priority places where people want to live, there is, there are like the salaries are very low for doctors, like, uh, like in a general area. And then like, like, like some small town in South Dakota will have like, will pay huge amounts of money to have an emergency room doctor come and like come to their hospital. That's very, it's very good. Um, and these markets are so inefficient and there is like this, I'm just really interested in how tele telehealth is going to change that. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Telehealth is fascinating. I think, cause it, it basically, it makes it so that you're the, you're, the functional market you face is not just people in your area. Right. So like you could get care if you live in North Dakota and there isn't a, you know, whatever subspecialist you need, maybe that that doesn't limit your access because you can talk to someone who happens to live in New York. Um, so you've just yeah. described the perfect business, a call center in Bangalore composed of high quality doctors um, who will telemedicine you at uh, at somewhere halfway between or or a, a quarter of the way between Bangalore prices and and uh, US prices and I'm sure it would be illegal to provide such service under US law but I suspect such uh, entity would operate under Indian law but wait there's more you could have a robot remotely perform surgery using live in person like like a surgeon could be doing like something virtually like using vr and like this is not that far away yeah. and like now we have a huge imperative to create these types of things because you could have truly sterile environments it's going to seem like the sterile environments we create in sur surgery with human beings going in and actually doing the surgery are going to seem like dinosaur medicine in a couple of years. You're gonna be like, can you believe they used to do surgeries in person? Do you believe the, can you believe rat, it took them like 10 years to figure out the rats fed the bubonic plague. Like, do you like, you know, people used to die from dysentery on the way to like on the Oregon trail. Like there's all these like things that like, sorry. All right. so, so I am now imagining healthcare reform according to Hannah Neeprash. All right, so um, Nancy Pelosi calls you up tomorrow and says, Hannah Neeprash, don't pay any attention to political considerations. That's my job. Um, don't pay any attention to any constituency. Don't pay attention to any platitudes of any political party, uh, not even mine. That's all my job. Tell me, the three, th the three policy changes that I can magic into existence and, um, and ma have maximal benefit to American healthcare. <laughs> what is number one? And if you get past number one, what's number two? And if you get past number two, what's number three? Yeah, ooh, that's really good. Or Mitch McConnell. I mean, I don't care if it's, you know, somehow I don't think Mitch McConnell actually 
like wants to do much healthcare reform, but like, I don't care who asks the question, like what, what, what is the, what is the, the, the want list that actually constitutes the, uh, the maximum bang for the buck in terms of impact? I would say number one, figure out how to pay for high quality care instead of just paying by volume, right? So I wanna pay more for like the knee surgery that fully fixes the problem so someone can go back to playing tennis than for the knee surgery that doesn't improve the quality of life at all. And requires another knee surgery exactly. two years yeah. later. Yeah, or like, you know, when you're recovering from it, you wind up with a hospital, like a you acquire a terrible infection in the hospital and like it actually makes you worse off maybe. That also happens. Um, that's tough to do, but I think that would be the like the the biggest benefit to everybody, right? Because prices, if prices are high, that's okay if you're getting a lot of health for the money that you're spending, right? High prices aren't necessarily bad as long as we get a lot of value for what we what we spend money on. Okay, okay so so is that? It? But, but that's almost like a research question rather than a policy question, right? I mean, Nancy Pelosi could say tomorrow, we're price discriminating based on quality, mm-hmm. but that doesn't answer the question who's quality and how you measure it. Well, you know, we, we have definitely made progress towards measuring higher quality. So like in the scenario we just laid out, you can measure right and like there are surveys of patients to see how they're doing after their their knee surgery right and if the answer is they're doing great they're back to playing tennis awesome like that is something you can quantify versus like seeing that they had to have the same surgery again six months later so in some you're but but you have like fairly called me on the fact that this would not be actionable tomorrow well, but, but maybe what would be actionable is systematic yeah. collection of data on, follow-up data on quality of outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, like you, put, you, you put in place for everything the federal government is paying for a, uh, an understanding that there is some way to measure, like, was this a good idea? Was it done well? did outcomes, you know, and so you start actually learning like which doctors are worth more versus less. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm never opposed to more data collection. I think that is definitely something that will come out of the situation we're in right now as well. But in general, it's a good thing. Can I ask a question about your feelings about the data collection that's available publicly right now around COVID, not just in the U.S., but globally? Because I'm bonkers. Like, I kind of think it's crazy how little we know, given that, like, China, although it's China, but, like, but China has been dealing with this for twice as long as we have at this point. And we know so little about, like, re like about self-immunization about recontagion about mutability about like treatment about uh how it how it spreads like almost like 
right? It seems, it seems absolutely crazy. So do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it's, it's not that the incentives are, are off, like at least from a, a scholarly perspective, like every journal I know, every medical journal and like all the ones that kind of exist in that space are basically saying like, send us your research. We want to publish a ton, you know, like anything that advances the science on this topic, we want it. So certainly like teams are, are working on these questions and it's not for lack of like people identifying the right questions either. Um, I think some of it is data quality and data sharing. So, you know, you get into some like interesting game theory questions almost about like, uh, what are the incentives that countries have to share what is actually happening? Um, but from a like the the science perspective, the the other thing is just I, I and you guys have you've talked about this at least on rational security before, maybe on on in lieu of fun as well. Just that we're hampered by infrastructure right now. So they're they're even the data that are out there are of dubious quality, right? Like you mean infrastructure like testing. Yeah, yeah. Um, which then means uh, that like your denominator might be total garbage or it might just be variable from country to country or state to state right now as well. Yeah, I mean, it is super hard. To, like we don't know, it's not just the denominator but the numerator may be oh, wrong yeah. too, right? Yep. So we have, we don't know how many people are infected and we don't know how many people have died because it's widely believed that there's an undercount. And so when you, when you, you know, when you, you, you look at the expression and it's X with some coefficient of, of unknown coefficient over Y with some unknown coefficient. And, you know, you have this general sense that the denominator is roughly two orders of magnitude the size of the numerator, but between two and a half and, you know, one and a half orders of magnitude, that's a lot of people, you know, and like you really end up with a kind of head scratching when we don't know how many people are dying and we don't know how many people are infected. We don't know anything. And as that changes, which should, that means that like you can't necessarily look at trends in the data because everything is changing numerator and denominator right yeah right yep. yeah never mind i mean just basic questions about anything like related to like methodology and collection and yeah. you know everything else right so it's like i mean yeah so i want to ask another question about us healthcare that i think is not unique to the United States because I, you know, Canada has a similar problem, Russia has a similar problem, I suppose China probably has a similar problem. But the difference between urban, suburban, and rural healthcare infrastructure in this country is so extraordinary just because of the density of population and the state uh, and the the uh, distances between people and care, that the economics of it have to be just wildly different depending on the density of the communities that you're living in. And I wonder 
if that means as a practical matter that the United States or US states don't have one healthcare policies, we basically have three, right? You have a, an urban policy, which assumes that people are um, living, you know, in very close proximity, um, you ha uh, and it's also relatively easy to build large hospitals that are kept more or less continuously busy, um, but people will tend to be low income, but if you build infrastructure, it's gonna get used, right? You have suburban care, which will tend to have a lot of elective procedures is going to be, um, you know, less driven by emergency care, more driven by um, uh, 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 probably more driven by elder care. And, um, and then you have rural healthcare where you, if you design, if you build a lot of infrastructure, a lot of it is gonna be unused a lot of the time. So it's radically inefficient. And yet you can't expect people not to have healthcare within some reasonable number of miles from their house. And so my, I guess my question is, is there really such a thing as US healthcare policy or are we, and I'm probably not even thinking of all the iterations of this. I mean, Indian reservation healthcare is its own world. Uh, veteran healthcare is its own world. I, does it make, even make sense to talk about US healthcare policy rather than the constituent elements of US healthcare policy? I, I you know, for a, for not a healthcare economist, you were actually a total healthcare economist. Um, so well, I've spent a lot of time with you over the I, years. That's true. And your dad, also your dad. <laughs> Wait, well, how does Ben's dad get way into this? My dad used to run Sloan Kettering. Oh God, well, that'll um, do it. He's a, he's a clinical oncologist who ran a hospital for many years. Oh my gosh. And now plays excellent classical piano. That's how he spends his time. Uh, anyway, but you're, uh, yeah. what's the, what are your thoughts on the question? Yeah, so for sure, you've identified the rural-urban divide. Um, as it is right now, the way that we, the way that Medicare pays rural hospitals is basically, um, is completely different than how they pay urban hospitals. Um, they are trying to help keep the lights on and even that isn't working really well. I mean, there, there are hospital closures all over rural areas at the moment and it's having really detrimental effects on quality, um, especially if you look at say like um, labor and delivery outcomes, right? If your local hospital closes and you have to go way further, you are in trouble. Um, like those are, that is a real consequence that people are facing in rural areas, for sure. I think that in terms of the urban-suburban divide, it's kind of more of a like a safety net versus, um, uh, versus non-safety net. So essentially, like how many Medicaid patients are you seeing as opposed to seeing, you know, the like well-insured folks who can pay for their care and it's not an issue and maybe they're doing more elective stuff as opposed to like trying to manage lots of chronic conditions. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's tough to think of the U.S. healthcare system as a, as a single entity for exactly the reason that you described. We should probably wrap up it being six o'clock. I could talk to you like every day about a about 10 different things uh, related to this and also not related to this. We haven't even, I, I wanted to also share before we, we wrap up Ben, um, that when I was in seventh grade, I wrote a 10 pages of limericks that were a, a biography of myself. Um, that were, <laughs> that were in, it started, there once was a girl named Kate who had a changeable fate. She was to be born one July morn, but instead she came a week late. And so <laughs> that's very excellent. <laughs> so, um, so I feel Hannah, here's cheers to you. I, I respect, I respect your, your oeuvre, um, both, um, both in health um, care economics and in limericks. I once tried to write the world's most offensive limerick, <laughs> like to, to, to make every line as offensive as it could be. Um, but the thing is, I, I was pretty proud of what I came up with. Like, I would not actually read it in public on a, on a um, <laughs> but then I started Googling offensive limericks and I wasn't even in the ballpark of the right most offensive limericks. Like, that seems right to me. People's imagination for that sort of thing is so much deeper and richer than my own that I just conceded that I was a like a shyster in the offensive limerick department. I'm sure that there's both a Reddit and a 4chan and an 8chan thread on this line well, once <laughs> that are upon, robust. Once upon a time, Hannah and I had a competition that we called the Ode Off, which was uh, we each gave each other a newspaper story and within 48 hours had to write a, a formal ode on the subject of the news story. And I want to point out that Hannah's contribution of this was the story that I gave her was the obituary of a Croatian war criminal. And Hannah gamely wrote an ode to a Croatian war criminal on his death. Hannah, will um, you come back on and we can just make the whole show about like talking in limericks? Yes. Or like, or like we can just like, you know how Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel like has people on and like makes like rappers and like makes, like makes Lin-Manuel Miranda like freestyle. We're going to do that, but with you and with like giving you a cue and then you have to limerick for us. And in fact, anytime, this is a great idea. I like, don't know why you're not more enthusiastic. <laughs> anytime you want to just come on and like be part of the in lieu of fun five o'clock show, you're definitely like. That would be that would be super fun. So you should like join us anytime. Yeah, you were you're part of the Wittis Club, but now you're unfor unfortunately for you part of the Klonik Shea family of <laughs> as well. All right. All right. This is uh, great. <laughs> we will see you soon, and uh, we will be back tomorrow. It is Saturday. Uh, Saturday's show is just Kate and me, and sometimes we rapture in somebody from the audience. Sometimes we don't. Maybe so it'll be we, Hannah. Maybe it'll be Hannah and Alan together. Yeah, maybe maybe they'll be here together, and we will um, uh, uh, plan the show for next week, uh, which we always do, of course, on the show. Uh, and until then, at five o'clock tomorrow, remember: if you can't have fun in lieu of fun, you can still hang out with us. You can still hang out with us.